1: Worker of yours. Seriously? Wow. And anyway, the rock and roll legend bringing his rough and rowdy ways worldwide tour to the Sanger Theater for one night only, Monday, April 1st. The life you live, Dave Cohen, I'm telling you. You can register now to win a pair of tickets at slash contests. Experience the mythical magic of the rock and roll Hall of Famer with 10 Grammys, a Pulitzer, and a Nobel Peace Prize. There's nothing like seeing. And artists do their original songs that will stick with you forever. You can see Bob Dylan in concert, compliments of WWL. And and if you're selling Girl Scout cookies, did he buy any? Hmm. You'd think. Yeah. Yeah, I'll take some caramels. Anyway. Anyway. Thank you. Bruce Jentleson joins us now, professor of public policy and political science at Duke University, previously worked in the State Department and on the Middle East peace process. Let me say that again. Previously worked in the State Department and on the Middle East peace process. So he knows the people that are involved here. He knows the players. He knows the underpinnings. He knows the context. And with that, we welcome in Bruce Jentleson. How are you, Bruce?
2: I'm good, Tommy. hope you are as well.
1: I am, sir. Thank you. We're getting over Mardi Gras, trying to to recoup from that and, and get back to normal. Tell me about, um, I guess we can start with what's going on with the the U.S. Navy and what we're striking in Yemen.
2: Yeah, you know, the U.S. Navy is in the Red Sea. Uh, the Houthis, which are a Shiite militia, they actually control part of the government now in Yemen, have been firing a lot at shipping, not just U.S. shipping, but, you know, shipping that serves the world. And... And so we and Britain, a number of other countries' navies are there, but most of the military action is us and and the Brits. Uh, And we've been trying to hit not the people, but the missile sites and others, Uh, you know, because if shipping is hit, you know, inflation goes up, jobs get lost globally. So there's a real stake there. You know, it's gotten a little quieter there in the last couple of weeks, and the goal of the Navy now is both to hit the targets and to deter future action including sending a message to Iran that doesn't control the Houthis but does provide some supplies. So a little bit quieter, but you never know when it could explode again.
1: So So when it comes to the Houthis, Iran, what happened with Hezbollah and Israel? If you were to draw Venn diagrams, would Iran be in all of that?
2: So Iran, yeah, Iran is a, is a financial and military supplier to Hamas, uh, to Hezbollah, which is also a Shiite group in Lebanon, and to the Houthis. But it's not like they pull all the strings. Uh, they didn't order Hamas to do what they did on October 7th. You know, uh, it's not even clear that they knew in advance Hamas was going to do it. So you've got to see this as both Iran hand in it, but not like total puppet, you know, pulling the strings. Hezbollah has been there for a long time. Uh, They have lots of even greater military power than the Houthis or Hamas. And there continues to be missiles launched by Hezbollah into northern Israel, Israeli strikes into Lebanon, Uh, Israeli strikes even into Syria to get Hezbollah leaders. And so that front has been, you know, still pretty explosive, Uh, not going out of control. But the amount of, of weaponry up there. Uh, has the U.S., has Israel, has other countries, um, Saudi Arabia and others, really concerned as well.
1: One thing I can't believe, uh, Bruce, just looking at a map, is that these Houthi rebels, rebels have had such an impact on shipping that companies are choosing to go around South Africa. And I can only imagine the expense involved with that. Take me a little back, take us back if you can, to the history the strategy of the Houthis, what they're trying to do, and as it relates to shipping and what they're trying to affect and how they started doing this, how long they've been doing this, etc.
2: So there's been a civil war going on in Yemen for, let's at least a decade. Uh, and the Saudis supported the other side, which was more the Sunni Muslims. I have to say that part of the destruction, I mean, Yemen has had outbreaks of malaria, yellow fever, starvation. And the Saudis have been at fault here, too. You know, uh, uh, there's been fault on both sides, as there often is in war. Uh, So let me uh, take a uh, second, if
1: I can. The Saudis are supporting whom?
2: They're supporting the Sunni elements within Yemen, right? And so you've got the Sunnis and the Shia, and the Houthis were sort of an ethnic group, a Shia, the other, you know, uh, kind of— part of the islamic religious groups right. and the saudis were supporting the government there that was not a democratic government it was repressive It was a friend of theirs and since about two thousand fifteen they had really ratcheted up the civil war they did get to a truce with the houthis about a year or so ago uh... and so what, what the houthis are doing now some people see this as like you know opportunistic hey don't forget about us we can cause trouble uh... and the you know the the sea passage there's pretty narrow uh, so it's not hard to, to hit ships. It's kind of like off of Somalia a few years ago with mm-hmm. the pirates. Uh, and you're right, the, shipping, the shippers are making these decisions in part because their insurance rates go sky high. And so if they go around uh, southern Africa, that's a cost, but so is the in- insurance rate if they continue to try to get up to the Suez Canal. And so part of the goal here and why there's a fair amount of international support for this uh, is we all pay the price if the Houthis continue to disrupt the shipping.
1: So, tell me about the religious significance, Sunni, Shia, and Houthis, where all of that splits, well, where all of that fits in, rather, and where the split comes in Yemen with civil war. Was it based on religion or tribalism? And, and if you can, while I'm adding on to this big giant question, Bruce, that you can unpack, where, where, where does religion fit into tribal differences?
2: That's a really good question, Tommy. You know, I think it traces back to the descendants of the Prophet Muhammad that went in different directions, and it wasn't just a religious debate, it was of course politics, and who could control you know you know the, the benefits, the economies and the like and so in in between Saudi Arabia, which is Sunni, and Iran, which is Shia. You know, for a number of centuries, it wasn't that big a conflict, and it got more over the last 40, 50 years as both sides kind of radicalized. So the Saudis got more, you know, radical in their own version of Islam, and then the Iranians did too. I will say that over the last year or two, Saudi Arabia and Iran restarted diplomatic relations. Uh, They've struck a couple deals to kind of not make peace with each other, but ratchet it down. And then it comes into a country like Yemen, like you're asking, where the Houthis, there is this religious difference, but it was also tribal and ethnic, you know, in some ways like groups in our own society. When you say ethnic, are you talking race, Bruce, or what? No, you know, different version. Let's say ethnic, like the difference between, you know, a Czech and a Slovak, right? Okay. Uh, or, or a Pole, and, you know, so so not, not full race issues. Uh, and the Houthis were on the losing side. They lived in a particular, concentrated particular mountainous area. They weren't getting the benefits. So it was a mix of this... Deep religious difference and basic politics, not just religion, but the mix of the two.
1: This flies by so fast. The Houthis were the ones that killed the three Americans, correct?
2: Uh, yeah, in the naval attacks. That's, At that's naval,
1: and that there. was in, in what country? That was in. Well, no,
2: sorry. sorry I'm actually I'm right sure. there. Three Americans were killed up uh, by militias in Iraq that were Shia militias supported by Iran. They were killed there. Uh, so that was way up at another front of
1: so this the, so right the So that's what I'm trying to keep track of, and I, and I follow this you know, for a living. I'm trying to, and it's very hard, so I can imagine what the average person who is bombarded with God knows how many messages each day. So what led us to launch the attacks on the Houthis was what?
2: The attacks on the Houthis was because they were attacking ours and other international shipping. Uh, the three Americans that got killed— we attack the uh, militias in Iraq that were supported by Iran because they were the ones that killed the Americans, right? So that's way further in the north of the region, and the Houthis in Red Sea is down a little bit further in the south.
1: So what do the Houthis want? What would stop them besides force? Uh,
2: You know, I think they're getting, it's hard to know, but I think they're getting some pressure from Iran to ratchet it down because Iran you know doesn't really it's not in iran's interest that this escalates to the point that there's confrontations between the US and iran uh, not that we could you know somehow overthrow the government but that's not in their interest and so it seems that between the threat of the US and the british and the other navies there and pressure from iran that the houthis for the moment have reduced their attacks on the shipping. Uh, But you and I could talk in a week from now and it could could pick up again. It fluctuates.
1: And and I don't mean to, I hope I'm not making too much of this, but that's Captain Cook stuff. That's going back to the 1600s when it, it just seems hard for me to believe that in 2024, countries are choosing to go around South Africa as a result of how many people that are engaged in this activity?
2: Well, you know how insurance companies are, right? Oh, yeah. My goodness, you know, in New Orleans, you guys really know, right? Oh, yeah. And and so insurance companies have been saying to the big shippers there's a big Danish shipping company called Myersk. You probably see those big containers around the Mississippi River. And when their insurers say, "Uh, we're going to raise your rates, then as a business, you compare that cost to going around both the expense and the time of going around the Cape of Horn in South Africa, and you figure out which is, you know, which is slightly less expensive. But uh, but that's what's going on. I, th- I think that, you know, it, it it changes. I think there's a bit more shipping headed up to the Suez Canal now because there's a sense that it quieted down, but more attacks would lead to more going around Africa.
1: And how many people are we talking about that comprise the Houthis, do we know?
2: oh you know there there are tens hundreds of thousands in terms of the population but like any population in terms of sort of the fighting force or the military or the militia you know it's probably a couple thousand but they have been fairly well armed with missiles with radar systems uh and uh able to launch these attacks you know it's pretty narrow you're on the shore and the ships are going through they're not right. there's no, it's it's not it's not like the atlantic ocean in terms of being wide so but they have been Punching above their weight, you might say, in terms of their disruption.
1: And in terms of response, they don't wear uniforms, right? I mean, this is not like, as it relates to conventional warfare, I guess is what I'm saying, for people that are looking for a simple solution to a complex problem.
2: Yeah, and they, they, they have their uniforms for fighters, but this is mostly offshore, right? So it's more who's pushing the buttons on the missiles uh, from, from underground you know, stations and the like. So we have not engaged them on land, and there's no intention... Uh, Of anybody in the world, I think. Well, I can't speak of anybody, but you know, the Biden administration and our allies don't have any intention of going into to Yemen and somehow fighting them on the ground. It's really about keeping the sea lanes as safe as possible.
1: Let's talk, if we can, Bruce, about the internal politics of Saudi Arabia as it relates to their neighbors. Like you mentioned with Iran, they're going to ratchet it down, not get along with each other. But where the conflicts lie, what? in in uh spawn those conflicts and the united states we have to really adhere in a way to the middle east thing with our friends enemies our enemies whatever it is right
2: yeah i mean for years the saudis were very you know we can call it very fundamentalist and you know of the 9-11 hijackers i think nine of the hijackers were saudi right who you know, had grievances with their government and grievances with us. And they would, like, make a deal with their own religious authorities to, you know, let them do things externally. So a lot of the spread of extremist Islam in West Africa has been from the Saudis. It changed with this new leader, this young Mohammed bin Salama, who's still technically the crown prince, kind of like the vice president, but really running things. And, you know, he's really been trying to, um, I mean, he, was associated with that killing of the journalist. Uh, so it's not, I'm not saying he's a nice guy, but he's trying to modernize the country a bit. And he's trying to find ways to have relations, including with Israel, that uh, allow them to have economic exchange, uh, some intelligence information exchange, some technology. And their position has been, we will work with the U.S. and Israel to help end this Gaza conflict if Israel fundamentally commits to working towards, you know, peace with the Palestinians and a two-state solution. And um, and there's uh, a number of plans, and that's what the U.S. has been involved with. A couple of our key diplomats have been, you know, in, in the region almost uh, constantly lately, working with Saudi Arabia and Jordan and Qatar and the United Arab Emirates and Egypt, you know, to try to say to the Israelis, uh, you know, that, you know, that there are allies here, frankly, if you'll you know, if you'll desist from a strategy that, in my view, is it's not that Israel, Israel had a right to respond, but it's not been the right response. It's been counterproductive to Israel. So they're, they're, they're more moderate now, the Saudis, and more willing to play this kind of role. They see it as in their interest. But a lot of pieces of the puzzle still have to fall
1: together. And we're going to pick it up when we come back on the other side of the break about Hamas and Israel. But going back to Saudi Arabia for a second, they do not share American values, do they? I mean, we tend to, as Americans, we want to know who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and it makes it easier for us to try to make sense of it. But Saudi Arabia, they're really not the good guys when it comes to American values.
2: They're not. They're not a democracy. There's no sense that they'll ever be a democracy. Countries like Jordan are partial democracies. No way Saudi is. They, women have a, f- a few more rights than they did before, but it was only recently they were allowed to drive on their own. Uh, so the relationship with Saudi Arabia is based upon other interests. And when things happen like, you know, the brutal murder of Khashoggi, the journalist, uh, that the Saudis were very involved in, then we have a real big conflict uh, you know, that it gets in the way of other areas where we might work
1: together. All right, let me take a break. We'll talk about Israel and Hamas and hostages when we return. We're lucky to know Bruce Jenelson, professor of public policy, political science at Duke University. And again, I'll emphasize this, previously worked in the State Department and on the Middle East peace process. So he knows the, the comings and the goings, the ins and outs, of players and the context and so forth. We'll continue to talk about it when we come back. If you have any questions or comments, 504 one Tommy Tucker, back in a flash, W W L.
0: His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. hi And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. <laughs> but with the 3% annual percentage yield you can earn on a PenFed premium online savings account, your goal of supporting his dreams... Thanks for everything, Mom and Dad. ...will always be worth it. Apply today at PenFed.org savings. Federally insured by NCUA. $5 minimum to open account. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed.
1: PenFed's got great rates for everyone. When the whole family comes together to watch the game, nobody wants to miss a second of the action to run to the grocery store. With Instacart, you can get all your weekly groceries in as fast as an hour. Less time shopping means more game time. Let's
0: go. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum per order. Additional terms apply. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage.
1: 9.30, Tommy Tucker, WWO. I just heard that talking to Bruce Jenelson, our friend, professor of public policy, political science at Duke University, worked in the State Department and on a Middle East peace process. Somebody texted in, and I asked for questions, Bruce, and I'll pass them along, about the Russians. Where where do the Russians fit in to the Middle East? And, and I'll throw in the Chinese, as a matter of fact, as well. Do they have their hands in this as well?
2: The Russians have not been playing a big role in this. They kind of got their hands full in Ukraine Uh, China, it's interesting. So China had actually developed pretty decent relations with Israel uh, and Saudi Arabia, uh, you know, not instead of having relations with us through the country, but in addition to. Uh, And then, you know, China has taken a position of kind of pro-Palestinian, sort of for the ideology and all that sort of thing, but not, they're not active. They don't have a hand in this. Uh, People have even been thinking that maybe at some point, because look, they get a lot of oil from the region more than we do, and if oil prices skyrocket, it gives them an economic problem. Maybe they could actually play a role in, 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 in the diplomacy as well. So neither one is really a big factor in what's going on there now.
1: So what's going on with hostages and Israel and Hamas and the United States?
2: You know, uh, there was a release of, I think it was about 100 hostages back in November, a brief truce, uh, and there has not. A couple of hostages were rescued by the Israelis. A number of hostages have died in captivity. Nobody knows quite how many. And so there are estimates of maybe about 100 hostages left. There have been talks going on. Uh, we have been involved in the talks, Egypt, Qatar, you know, small country in the region but a big financial supporter of Hamas in Israel. And to be honest with you right now, it appears that, some proposals have been made and that the Israeli government and Prime Minister Netanyahu is kind of rejecting them out of hand. You know, and It's not that you have to accept everything. Look, labor and management never agree on the first set of proposals. But there's a lot of concern in Washington right now that Netanyahu, for his own reasons, you know, you know, wants, you know, would rather keep the military action going, and that's not necessarily in the interests of Israel. And a lot of the hostage families in Israel uh, are saying hostages first let's get them home you know enough is enough and so Netanyahu's position is not that popular in his own country and there will be a long way to go to an agreement but the obstacles are both on the Hamas side and on the Israeli side. So
1: when it comes to the Netanyahu government and the procedures in Israel how unpopular would he have to be for him to lose his job and then a government that was more hostage friendly take its place?
2: He is uh, immensely unpopular uh, and, um, you know, but the, it's a complicated the, – it's it's a coalition, legislative, parliamentary politics, and he's got a coalition. And, you know, to call an election now would take four to six months to organize it. It doesn't have to be an election for two or three years according to the laws. There are questions about whether you could just, you know, do some shifting of the coalition – uh, and uh, there are a couple of retired generals who are part of the what they call the War Cabinet, the five people with the most decision-making. You know, who are by no means peaceniks, but they're first of all they're smart about military strategy than Netanyahu or some of the pretty extreme people he has around him, and uh, they could be turned to as an alternative prime minister. But you know, it gets into the politics of what the demands would be of different small groups and stuff. But you know, his his popularity may be at about 12% now if he's lucky.
1: So let me ask about Qatar, because they, um, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, they donated a lot of money after Katrina built a new pharmacy uh, building at a university here. But w- what is their situation in all of this, their stance in all of this? Where where does um, their religion factor in all of this?
2: Yeah, they're they're Sunni. And Hamas, by the way, is Sunni. It's not Shia like Iran uh, or Hezbollah or, or Houthis. Um, they're a very, very tiny country, even by regional standards, on the, go- on the Persian Gulf. Uh, they do make a lot of money off of oil and natural gas. Uh, and they are where Al Jazeera, for example, the network is based. Um, and they've been a big financial supporter of Hamas. Uh, and so they have some leverage, and they have been part of the negotiations using that leverage, because they, too, it's one thing to support Hamas and have them there giving Israel a little bit of trouble, and it's another, of course, this whole war that has everybody in the region worrying about their own stability. And so, we've been working with them a lot, uh, including tightening the money supply and passing uh, possible negotiated, you know, uh, proposals through them to Hamas. Uh, so, you know, in the Middle East, there are some that you can really put in the easy category, bad guys, and there are a lot that are mixed. And Qatar is one of the one of the ones that's mixed.
1: Um. After 9-11, Bruce, you know, we, we tried to make sense of this whole thing, and, and then Iraq happened, and we and we had the misadventure in Iraq, and we found out about Sunni and Shia, and what's the third faction in Iraq?
2: Uh, Kurds, yeah. Kurds,
1: yeah. Um, yeah. Where now, with the mess that's in the Middle East, is this? does religion play a part in this, or differences in the Muslim religion? Uh, do 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 Shia hate Sunni as much as Shia hates people from Israel or Israel hates Shia or Sunni equally? Take me through all of that if you can.
2: Yeah, if there is I such think a in way. the late, yeah, late seventies, eighties, and nineties, that was really a, almost a, a contest about which which interpretation of Islam dominated Shia or Sunni. Actually, now even you know with the Agreement I mentioned between Iran and Saudi Arabia, they now have diplomatic relations or they don't have a long time it 's more about you know interest in, in some ways the the biggest threat comes from the extremists on all sides uh, there are sunni extremists right that 's what al Qaeda was, and there are islamist extremists that 's what some of these militias were that killed Americans and so the in some ways the main stream of both Sunni and Shia have something in common with each other that they don 't have with the, either of their wings, same in Israel you know you have a lot of Israeli extremists who not only are against Hamas, but think Israel should control the entire region. Uh, and and they have been a big problem, too, and many Israelis who believe that if they can live in security, they're willing to have peace. So it's kind of the extremist wings of each group that's the biggest problem.
1: Is this about primarily what we're looking at now, and, and I'm sure it's a mixture, but if you had to point to one, would it be— religion would it be political ideology would it be uh power would it be money what
2: it's power and money more okay. than anything else it's power and money you hit it on the nail uh and religion in some ways is a factor but it also can be almost like a you know a cover a narrative you use but a lot of it is about
1: power a rationale if you will right
2: yeah exactly Got Yeah.
1: It. thank you bruce appreciate your time any final thoughts
2: uh We'll keep our eye on it. You we'll know, <laughs> see where
1: it goes. <laughs> As Tommy Lee Jones said in uh, No Country for Old Men, if it ain't a mess, it'll do till one gets here. Thank you, sir. Bruce Jenelson, right, professor sir. of public policy, political science at Duke University. Money and power, not religion. Previously worked in the State Department on the Middle East peace process. We'll take a break, come back. We're going to talk about chronic wasting disease.
0: His karate lessons might not turn him into a black belt. Hi-ya! And even after band camp, he might not be the greatest musician. <laughs>